Sometimes. 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 Sometimes I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. I don't know what to believe, what to feel, what to do. What do you do when when you don't know what to do? Is it okay to doubt? Am I the only one? Am I the only one? Am I the only one who has doubt? How do I deal with this? How do I overcome doubt? How do I overcome doubt? How do I overcome doubt? Well, good morning. My name is Nick Allen. I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills. Um, and I'll be kicking it old school style today with a hand-drawn illustration. I hope that you're as excited as I am. I am. I brought a spare marker just in case the first one doesn't work. Because um, I'm prepared like that. Uh, if you're like me and uh, you've been attending as a part of this series or, or even watching at home, um, you've been challenged by what it means to admit that we all live with various degrees of um, doubt in our life uh, over trusting Christ. Um, and you, if you're anything like me, have been equally distracted by the figure of a man jumping from one mountain to another, thinking to yourself, he ain't gonna make it. Like, I approached this series with an enormous amount of doubt in my life, thinking, that guy's done. Like, he's not going to make it from one side to the other. Um, and maybe the joke's on us, because when we have that level of doubt, um, to me, it would make more sense to just stay on the other side of the mountain. But faith and belief in God calls us to do something entirely different. I think that the Bible is a funny thing, um, not only because it often presents to us really funny stories, but I, I love that the Bible doesn't just give us the happy. If God had determined only to give us happy moments in the Bible, it would be far shorter, and we as a church would not be engaged in a two-year Bible reading plan. It would be like two weeks. And like here, between now and Thanksgiving, I could read cover to cover all the happy, great stories in the Bible, but he, he, he chooses to give us something different. If the Bible were only the happy, you and I couldn't relate to any of the characters in it. If it were only the happy, then a story like Moses, Moses would not have been afraid to go and rescue God's people from slavery in Egypt because it wouldn't have been slavery. God would have inspired him to go pick up the kids from camp. If the Bible only gave us the happy, then we wouldn't read a story about David and Bathsheba where David and Bathsheba did what David and Bathsheba did. Instead, it would just be him noticing the naked figure on the silhouette of a roof going, hey, Uriah, good job. If God had only determined to give us the happy in the New Testament, then when Peter walked on water, there wouldn't have been a moment when, because of his doubt, he sank. He would have just, I don't know, done the Macarena on top of it and been happy in that moment and said, look what I can do. If God had only determined to give us the happy, then we wouldn't have encountered a, an apostle like Paul, who is the foundation of what we believe and understand about the local church being shipwrecked and imprisoned and afraid for his life. Uh, instead, his biggest issue with planting the church in Corinth would have been whether or not they got a certificate of occupancy from the city to expand their children's space. <laughs> the Bible doesn't just give us the happy. Um, the Bible offers to us the broken. And in fact, that's scripture's default, that God's spirit would move in the world to capture the hearts of man and reveal to us our brokenness in such a way that we understand our overwhelming need for God. And this week of all weeks, in light of events across an ocean, we are left with two options. To not believe in God or to recognize our overwhelming, continual, ever-present need for God. 
good things happen when we discover difficulty in Scripture. It doesn't serve to normalize our sin for us, but to identify our sin. And sometimes it, it identifies for us what our sin is, but sometimes in, in other cases it identifies for us what our sin is not. And that's where we begin today. Um, in the end of our series on doubt, we need to understand an important framework for this short series in the life of our church. Um, and it starts with a very important statement. Doubt is not sin. It's not a sin to doubt. It's almost like that moment where we read in Scripture and we start to misinterpret money because a lot of us think that money is the root of all evil, but Scripture doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, the Bible doesn't teach us that doubt is sin, but what we understand from a greater reading of Scripture is that doubt can lead to sin because doubt can lead us to denounce the very God who created us. And it would be a declaration that Jesus Christ is, in fact, not God's only Son, that He was not crucified and resurrected as a Savior of the world's sin. And so doubt leading to that sort of declaration is ultimately the only sin that counts when we deny Jesus Christ. But have you ever stopped to wonder whether or not doubt could lead us in a different direction? Not towards the denounce, but towards questions that draw us deeper into a relationship with Christ. What if doubt doesn't always lead to denouncing our faith? What if it just gives us questions? And what if questions don't always lead to answers, but instead pave the way to a deeper relationship with Jesus? I read an article this week in Relevant Magazine, and it says, A bout of doubt may turn out to be one of the healthiest and most hope-inspiring experiences you'll ever go through. Why is that? Because in his book called Into Minds, Oz Guinness says that doubt comes from a word meaning two. To believe is to be in one mind about accepting something as true. As believers, we are in one mind that Jesus Christ is the Savior of those of us caught in sin. But to disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting that. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disbelief. To doubt, on the other hand, is to waver between the two. To believe and disbelieve at once and to be in two minds. So today we want to dispel doubt. Um, we want to land on one side of the coin or the other, understanding that our faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save us, and that it's an active, present faith that will sustain us throughout our lives. I think that the best place to start with our Thomas story, you know, locked inside those verses in John chapter 20, um, you know, John is the only gospel that ever gives us any other information about Thomas other than just being listed as one of the 12 disciples. On a couple of different occasions, Jeff's talked about over the last couple of weeks that we get to see that Thomas has a voice, that, uh, that Thomas has lines in Scripture to say to us. And, and this is the longest and most intentional um, action that we have with Thomas. Um, and, and whether we've been here all three weeks of this series or if this is your first Sunday overcoming doubt with us, it's really important that no matter how we approach today that we find the Thomas story couched in the entire story of John chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me there. Words are going to appear on the screen so that you can read along with me as we check out the entirety of the post-resurrection experiences that Jesus' followers had with the resurrected Messiah. John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love these moments in John when not only does he call himself the disciple that Jesus loved, but he also reminds us that he's a faster runner. <laughs> and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Then Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but must go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene wept and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even though I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Jesus and Thomas. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, more than a week went by. His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God, may you be honored by both the reading and also the hearing of your word. And may the hearing of your word translate into our hearts in such a way that we become better the people of God that you have created us to be. Regardless of the doubts that we bring to the table, living in full faith, following you, and following your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Did you notice the other encounters in the story? 
So check them out. Mary Magdalene, she finds that the body is missing. She reports that to the other disciples. Peter and John go to confirm it. John, again, was the faster runner. Um, those guys, they see the empty spot. They, they see the folded clothes. They believe that the Lord has risen, but they still did not understand why. So they went back home in locked doors. Mary, she's the one with the actual encounter. Two angels tell her to pull it together and to quit crying. And she turns to see the Lord, but she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. I think in this moment we should forget calling Thomas, doubting Thomas, and instead call Mary, mistaken Mary. Um, maybe she was nearsighted. I don't know. But Mary Magdalene ran back to tell the disciples exactly what she had seen and what she had experienced. And she was the first to announce that she had seen the risen Christ. And those disciples, even though Peter and John had confirmed the empty tomb and expressed their own level of belief, are with others, locked inside of a room, afraid of what was going to happen to them because of the Jews who had crucified Jesus. Afraid of what they did not understand. A couple things to know. Jesus came to them. He showed them his wounds. He offered them his peace. And he gave them a glimpse of the Holy Spirit, a foreshadowing of the Pentecost moment that was going to come in Acts when they would be filled. And now we get to Thomas. And we're left to wonder if the intent of the Bible was to help us to understand that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, that salvation is found in Him and Him alone, that He is the manifest glory of the God of this great universe on display for us to see, yet instead became the object of great scorn and the great and sovereign God of this universe poured forth all judgment and all wrath on sin, yet to offer complete and total grace to you and I pointed that wrath his own son, Jesus. If the reason that we have scripture today is to come to a saving faith in Christ as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for your sin and for mine, then why give us the doubt? Why paint for us the picture of misunderstanding? Why give us disciples who shrunk back in fear? Why give for us chapters before John the Baptist who was among the first to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah now on his death sentence, fearfully confirming that Jesus was really him? Why give us Peter, who should have known better, denying Jesus before men? Why give us the Jews, who should have seen Christ coming before, because of the prophecies that they had in the Old Testament, who should have seen Christ coming, now crucifying Jesus? And why give us Thomas, one of the disciples who had been with him on his journeys, who was at one point ready to die with him, now doubting the very existence of him? Why give us the example of the unless in someone who, as a disciple, should have known better? Verse 31 says that we have these accounts, these very accounts, the mistaken identity account, the confused, misunderstood fear account, and now the doubting account in John, so that we may believe. Framework for what we understand in Scripture today is that our doubt is not a sin and that Scripture exists so that we might believe. And the key word there is belief. It's the Greek word pistuo, and it's a verb. That's a really important part for us to understand. It literally means to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place one's confidence in. It's used 85 times in the book of John. The noun form, pistis, which translates as belief, is not found once in John. For John, the disciple that Jesus loved, the act of believing was more important. It mattered more than the thing in which we believed. My own little political side note, we often spend way more time tweeting and posting and arguing about the things that we believe instead of acting like believers. Maybe you're here today and you've come to a place in your life where at the invitations of God's Holy Spirit, you have recognized your sin and your separation from a holy God and admitted your need for forgiveness. 
Maybe you responded in repentance and turned away from sin and expressed faith in Christ. The Bible says that that faith in the book of Ephesians is the gift of God. It's not by works so that any one of us can boast. And I find that so funny that we know that faith is the gift of God. It's not by works. And yet we're willing to hold Thomas accountable for the faith that he did not have when we readily admit that faith is the measure and the gift of the Holy Spirit to give to Thomas in that moment. And that's what we see happening in Scripture. Scripture exists in its entirety, both the good and the bad and everything in between to present to us the redemption story of God and to invite us as an option to take part in that redemption. Thomas had a moment when his faith was tested and his level of belief was measured. And therein lies the problem, doubt. Here's what we suspect our doubt should look like. And this is what we hope as believers in Jesus Christ. That somehow our level of doubt in life would always and steadily be remaining on the decline. That at one point we were doubters up here not knowing who Jesus was and not believing what Jesus did and then saying that it couldn't be true, it couldn't be true. And one by one those doubts get proven wrong and it's always on the decline. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we hope that our faith would do this. That our faith would always begin and remain presently on the incline. And the exact moment in our life where our faith capsizes our doubt and we begin to have more faith in Jesus than we do doubts against him, then we call that the salvation moment. We've now been proven that Jesus is real and we can go on growing in faith and decreasing in doubt. But what we know as believers or what we soon find out as believers is that faith and doubt don't always operate in a beautiful picture like this. We are not always on the path to increasing faith. And we are not always on the plan of decreasing doubt. They sometimes move in different directions. This would work if all of our doubts could be explained away. This would work if all of our doubts could be proven false. This would work if Scripture's intent was to answer for us every single question that we could possibly bring to God about things like dinosaurs and evolution and end times. But we know that Scripture does not seek to answer every single question that we can probably bring to God. But you also know that God is never intimidated. He is never afraid of. And he's never offended by the questions that we ask. Jason Hale and I, he's our South Nashville campus pastor. As we spent time together preparing for the messages that we would bring today, we stumbled on an Andy Stanley talk where he concluded just the opposite of this. You see, our doubt doesn't exist waiting to be proven false. It doesn't go away just because we want it to or just because someone else provides for us the answers to our questions. If that was the case, then Thomas would have responded in a very different way in John chapter 20, verse 25, when the disciples said, hey, we've seen him. Then Thomas would have said, what? You saw him with your own eyes? That's great. Then it must be true. I believe as well. But that's not what Thomas said. Because here's the deal with our doubt. Someone else's story cannot solidify your faith. Your grandmother's faith cannot be your own. Your parents' decision to raise you in, in a home exposed to the grace of Jesus Christ in no way ensures that you will one day grow up and surrender your disbelief in trust and salvation from the Lord and in lordship to Christ. Someone else's story cannot solidify your own faith. And just like we come into this room Sunday after Sunday expecting someone else's worship to God to miraculously transform our worship for God or expecting someone else's reading of Scripture to miraculously transform our readings of Scripture, we just know that that doesn't happen. 
We can be inspired by someone else's faith story. We can be compelled by someone else's faith story. We can be invited to know Jesus by someone else's faith story. We can also be challenged and sometimes even rebuked by someone else's faith story, but we cannot be sustained. Our life cannot be built on someone else's testimony. We can never be fully evidenced by someone else's foundation because trust in our lives requires something altogether different. Someone else's story cannot solidify your faith because your doubt and my doubt desires its own proof. And in that blank in your notes, you don't have to write the word desires. You could easily just as well pen the word demands. That doubt desires proof. Sometimes in our lives, doubt demands proof. That's what Thomas did. He said, unless, in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. Unless I get to place my finger into the mark of the nail and place my hand into his side, I will, stomping on the ground, fists over shoulders, say, I will never believe. What is your unless? Unless God does this, I don't think he can be trusted. Unless God's word tells me this, I don't think it can be true. Unless Jesus Christ shows up in this way in my life, then I simply cannot be the follower of God that the word tells me I should be. What is your unless? What is it that you need to see? What is it that you need to know? What is it that you need to do? What is it that you need to hear to offer you the kind of faith that's going to tick you just one more level up from the doubts in your life so that your faith is always on the incline and your doubt is ever on the decline and you can live a life that means you trust God? Thomas had a very bold physical unless. But in reality, he was just asking for the same eyewitness account that the other disciples and believers had already experienced. Mary already got to see the wounds of Jesus and herald that he was alive. The disciples already got to see and experience Jesus and feel the peace as he breathed the Holy Spirit into their lives so that they could believe too. Thomas just wanted the same eyewitness account. And if you go to a very careful understanding of church history, that was important. Because the church was founded and the Bible was written on eyewitness accounts. And the very fact that we see Thomas again mentioned in Acts chapter 1 included among the 11 leftover disciples, because you know what happened to Judas. <laughs> the fact that he's included in that list in Acts chapter 1 means that he was also one of them. An eyewitness account. Maybe Thomas wasn't saying, I doubt in the power of Jesus. Maybe he was just saying, I need what you've already had. I need the eyewitness account. He had a very bold unless that came with only one single solution, Jesus. Thomas knew that Jesus died. He, he knew the manner in which Jesus had died. He, he knew the tomb where Jesus was laid. And Thomas wanted to see proof of the crucifixion before he could reconcile the resurrection. But even that isn't all the scars were meant to do for us. You see, the scars of Jesus weren't only proof of the resurrection. They were evidence of God's love. Evidence of a Savior who died a painful death. Evidence of John's thesis at the beginning of his book in chapter 3 where he encountered a religious leader and he told him what it meant to be born again and he said to them the most famous Bible verse in all of scripture that you and I memorize as little kids if we grew up in the church for God so loved the world that he gave. 
And now, because of what's happened in the life of Jesus and his disciples, we get an entirely new definition of what it means for God to give. Because God didn't give Jesus to politically reinstate a national Israel. Because God didn't give us Jesus to militarily overthrow a tyrannous Rome. Because God did not give Jesus to become some mighty warrior. Instead, he gave Jesus to become a sacrificial lamb, and he did that out of love. The scars did not just prove that Jesus died and came back to life. They proved once and for all again how far God's love could go and how far God's love would go. I'm kind of left with a really important question here. You can arrive at a different conclusion from me if you want. Did Thomas actually touch the hands? Did he actually stick the hand inside the side? Hashtag gross if he did. Um, Did he follow through with Jesus' invitation? The Bible doesn't say. The, the, uh, The Bible doesn't tell us that Thomas touched. The Bible doesn't tell us that Thomas felt. The Bible tells us that at the very words of Jesus, Thomas's response was a declaration, my Lord and my God. Maybe what Thomas thought he needed in an unless moment faded away at the very presence of Jesus. Because who needs to feel the scars when you're face to face? Who needs to touch the side when you can hear the words What was Jesus' gift to Thomas in that moment? Was it scars to touch or the capacity to believe? Was it a physical wound or the very presence of God? You see, our doubts are, are rarely solved by proof. They require presence. Thomas didn't need proof. He needed a person. And the doubts that we have are are always answered in the presence of Christ and in the promise of his spirit. Jesus had already explained to the disciples what would happen, why he had to die, why he had to go. Because he promised the spirit in his place. For what? In in John chapter 16, he explains starting in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. You cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to us to come as a comforter or as a helper. And then he explains exactly what that Holy Spirit would offer to his followers. The Spirit will offer conviction of sin. Sometimes we think that's our job. And the role of the Holy Spirit will now be played by Nick Allen. That is never a good thing. Never supposed to be true. It belongs exclusively to the Holy Spirit of God. He convicts us according to our sin so that those of us who live in a state of disbelief are invited to turn to Christ. 
He convicts us regarding our righteousness because we know that our righteousness is not unknown, but that Jesus literally goes to God for us, and it's his imputed righteousness that makes us holy, not on our own, but because of him. He convicts us according to judgment in the world because the enemy in the world will be judged and sin will stand trial. And side note, if we ever go doubtful of a God because of the wrath and judgment we've seen pour out on sin, we need to do two things. One, we need to be thankful that God's wrath is poured out on sin. Because what an unloving God it would be who just let that go untouched. We need to be grateful that God's wrath is poured out on sin. And we need to be grateful that when it was, it was directed at Jesus as our replacement. Jesus said that the Spirit will guide you in his truth so that we can understand God. Jesus said that the Spirit would explain to us the future so that we understand what is to come and that would give us confidence in Christ. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would point out Christ's glory and make a declaration of Jesus, be the evidence of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in our lives so that Thomas one day would be equipped to even utter the words, my Lord and my God. That was the very power of the Holy Spirit in his lives. All of that, all of that that we receive in the power of the Holy Spirit is a gift. All of it. And it's the kind of power that enables verse 31 to be real. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That life is power. That life is full. That life is by the nature of the Greek definition of the word, the vitality and the essence of only what we receive from God in Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God is why I subscribe to a, a, a different diagram of what doubt, doubt is for us. You see, doubt in my life and in yours probably looks a little bit more like this. That there are moments when we have experienced more doubt and then less doubt, followed by more doubt, followed by less doubt, followed by an ever-increasing amount of doubt. And that typically follows the circumstances in our lives and the circumstances that we see in the world and the difficulties that we have in relationship and the very fact that you and I have trouble following what God's word says. All of that can take us on a journey. And we think falsely in our minds that as long as our faith hovers high and above any level of doubt that we would bring, that we're still in the okay zone. But see, I don't think our faith is even a dotted line that hovers above our doubt. I think that our faith just follows our line of doubt. And that the presence of Jesus and that the power of his spirit meets us at every single question, meets us at every single high, and follows us into every single low. Because he promised to never leave us or forsake us. And he promised to give us his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that it was God who anointed us. That God set his seal of ownership over our lives. And that he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Always living and moving and breathing with us. I don't need my faith to exist outside of my doubt. I need my faith to be very present and very real with my doubt. Maybe today you have brought an unless. Maybe today you have questions and doubts and fears that have not been answered by God. Maybe the circumstances that you have faced in life have caused you to be a believer who desperately needs to understand where faith is and how you're supposed to live with that in the midst of burning questions regarding God. One of my heroes this week, a guy named Reggie Joyner, I attended a conference and he said these words, if kids 
I think you can substitute adults. You could probably say if people. If people aren't allowed to process their doubt, they will never own their faith. I believe that for kids. I believe that for us. And I believe that Rolling Hills is a safe place to process doubts, to explore doubt, to confess fears, and to express concern that what we've put our hope in may be difficult to always believe. And when you express those doubts, you're not going to find the 47 scientific reasons why you're wrong here. But what you'll be met with is the fellowship of believers who in Christ can be the presence of Jesus in such a way that shows you he is real. Doubts are always answered in the presence of Christ and in the promise of his spirit. Because doubt is never remedied by the presence of faith. That's a noun. But by the actions of belief, that's the verb. Thomas's unless moment was for proof. What he got was the active presence of Jesus and a reminder to put his active belief in that Savior. Stop unbelieving and start believing. Land on the side of the coin that you're going to land and put the unbelief aside. You can continue to have questions. You can continue to have doubts. And I will be there with you in the middle of those. But actively choose to believe in me, Thomas. Then in a moment of perfect foreshadowing, Jesus said that those who believe without seeing would be blessed. He didn't say that Thomas wasn't blessed. Just that those of us who believe, active verb belief, those of us who believe without seeing Jesus would receive a blessing. The reason it's perfect foreshadowing is because all believers post the Acts 2 church would believe in Jesus without getting to see the resurrected Lord. I don't know anybody who got a post-resurrection visit with Jesus outside of those guys and Paul. And it's perfect foreshadowing because in Acts chapter 1, Thomas is listed with those disciples. And what were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were electing another believer among them. And they were waiting for Pentecost to launch the movement that you and I are still a part of today. When the Holy Spirit of God awakens the heart of a sinner to the reality of Jesus... Salvation has come. And the doubts that we continue to experience in our lives don't have to be explained away. Instead, they can be an early detection sign that God is moving in our lives and doing something in us and helping us better become the people that God has created us to be. Doubt offers us an opportunity to ask questions. Doubt gives to us the possibility of intended growth. It invites the Holy Spirit to come in us and to multiply our faith at the exact point that we need it so that we can be active believers in Jesus Christ and drawn closer to who he is. I think there are so many really trite um, really inexcusable Christian cliche things we could say with regard to yet another terrorist attack in our world. What I would sum up is this. There will be people today who choose unbelief because of evil actions. There will be people today who say, because of stuff like this, I can't believe in a God like that. 
And what my hope and prayer is, is that the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will respond with the peace and the presence of Jesus in such a way that ignites belief in response to one of the most doubt-filled circumstances in our world. I think that the history of the church tells us that belief in response to disaster, although improbable, is highly possible because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus did a whole lot more than what's written down and because he continues to do a whole lot more than what's written down in the life of believers. Active, verb, following believers. The way to live with faith in the middle of doubt is to be a people who actively put your belief in Jesus in spite of ever-increasing doubts. And we pray today that not by our power, but by the precious power of the Holy Spirit, that would be possible for each of us. Would you pray with me today? Holy Spirit, we sing that you are welcome here. And there's a reason for that. Because we need you to do what Jesus said you were going to do in John chapter 16. We need you to convict us regarding our sin. We need you to define for us our brokenness. We need you to invite us to put on Christ's righteousness. We need you to explain to us the future and to tell us who Jesus is so that we can stop not believing and keep on believing. Holy Spirit, we need you to help us believe when our doubt is big. And we need you to help us stay humble when our doubt is small. We need you to show us the glory of God. Through the powerful presence of his son, who meets us at our exact point of doubt every time. and gives us his presence and his peace. Maybe we don't need to overcome our doubt, God. Maybe we just need to understand our doubt as an opportunity to know you more, to trust you more, and to follow you wherever you lead. Jesus, may that be true of me May that be true of these brothers and sisters of mine. May that be true for the unbeliever in our midst who says, I still just don't get it. Holy Spirit, may you move in such a way 
that shows to them a God they can believe in. It's in the holy and precious and also powerful, resurrected name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I sure am glad that we've done this series. I, I usually say, oh, I'm glad you were here, and I am. But I'm so thankful um, that for these three weeks we have become a church that didn't highlight pretty things, but that exposed broken things and pointed out to us that our doubt um, can be hope-bearing and life-giving if in the middle of it we choose to believe in Jesus. Um, we continue to believe in him, and that's evidenced by the fact that we as a church bring tithes and offerings. Um, so I would ask that men and women who are called ushers would come forward at this time. And um, this is an illustration of our belief in God. Um, this is an illustration of our surrender to him, telling him that he's better with our money than we are. And so we want to give to him out of our first fruits and our labors um, that which he so richly deserves. Um, we give this to him um, and ask at the same time that he would take it, multiply it, use it to reach people in our community and to bless people around the world so that they may see the presence of Jesus and follow God as a result. Father, would you take these gifts, use them in whatever way you see fit, and draw people closer to you as a result. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. everyone. In our Next Step Minute this week, we are talking about reaching out. We'll hear from Kenley Flowers and David Curtis as they share two great opportunities we have to reach out this Christmas season. Hey Rolling Hills, we're excited to let you know that Jingle Jam is back and it's rewrapped. We can't wait to worship with you and your family on Friday, December 4th at 6.30 p.m. Also this year, we are partnering with Justice and Mercy International to educate kids about missions. Come ready to worship, play games, and learn about the true meaning of Christmas. You can find out more by visiting rollinghillscommunity.org slash jingleton. Hey everyone, the Christmas season is upon us and we have an amazing event coming up that you won't want to miss. Join us on Friday, December 11th at 6 p.m. for our Sounds of Christmas concert. This concert is a great new way to get into the Christmas spirit. Come enjoy your favorite Christmas classics as well as some original music written and performed by the Rolling Hills Worship Arts Team and some special guests. You can get your tickets in advance for just five bucks by visiting Info Central today or visiting rollinghillscommunity.org backslash Sounds of Christmas. As an added bonus, if you purchase your ticket by December 9th, you'll receive our very own Christmas worship album. So come on out for a great night of Christmas fun. I had that moment of fear after I prayed for the offering um, that I didn't know what was next. I was like, oh no, am I supposed to say something to close this? And then the video kicked in and I felt real comfortable all of a sudden. <sighs> I'm glad that we have those announcements pointing us to the things that God is continuing to do in the life of our church and allowing us opportunities to celebrate um, really what's true about Christmas. Um, we can all get burdened by so many stories and so many messages this time of year, um, but we do have a true meaning of Christmas to celebrate coming around the corner. Next week, however, we get to celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, in a really significant way in the life of our church. So I invite you to be back next Sunday. Um, elementary school kids will get to come and worship with their parents next Sunday um, and experience communion and stories of 
life-giving transformation and thanksgiving in, in our body, and I'm so excited about that. So be sure to be back with us next week as we celebrate Thanksgiving, and then all of the weeks after that um, as we celebrate Christ at Christmas. Um, may we go in the peace that Jesus gave to us in John chapter 20 today. Um, peace be with us as we go um, and also as we return. Thanks for being here this morning.